Hi, this is Sonia Walger and welcome to Bookish, a podcast where I talk to interesting people about the five books that have shaped them most. My guest this episode is producer, screenwriter and director David Goyer. David's screenwriting credits include the Blade trilogy, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, Dark City, Man of Steel and its sequel Batman vs Superman. David and I met on his ABC show Flash Forward. He and his wife Marina have three beautiful and rambunctious boys and I'd like to take this moment to extend a special thanks to Marina for keeping them at bay on a Sunday morning when we recorded this in his office. I, when I decided I wanted to do this podcast, you were literally one of the first people I thought of because when we did Flash Forward back in the day, yeah. you took me out to dinner and we talked about Olivia Benford, my character, who I played opposite Joe Fiennes. I played his wife in this fantastic, fantastic show that we did together. And you had, you mentioned a book, Book of the New Sun, and then you had Olivia, I forget which came first, whether Olivia, you had Olivia reading it in the pilot or whether you mentioned it to me. Sure. And then you d- decided to make Olivia read it. But I dutifully went off and read it and was blown away because it was a book. I It was a genre I don't know. I'm not mm-hmm. a sci-fi girl. And you, I remember so persuasively convinced me that sci-fi or not, this transcended the genre, that this was an extraordinary book just a, a wonderful piece of writing and you were so not wrong and I read the whole trilogy and I've never forgotten it I really haven't and so when I th- came up with the podcast you were literally one of the first people I thought of and I thought I want to know what what Goya's five books are that shaped mm. him and I wasn't surprised to see this on your list that I, I was not surprised but I was glad to see it it was really nice that it was a book that was meaningful for you as well yeah, the book of the new sun is—it's um, kind of a writer's book. Uh, Gene Wolfe—he's still alive. He's in his eighties. He's sort of a writer's writer. He never had a lot of um, commercial success, and his his novels and short stories are hard to adapt. Hmm. Why is that? Do you think they're dense? Um, one of the things that's interesting about the book of the new sun is it's, it's, it's very layered and um, we're sitting here in my office right now and surrounded by surrounded by books, books. but I have, I have uh, the top shelf up there is, is uh, all of Gene Wolfe's books Hmm. because he's one of my favorite authors, but I have probably no less than half a dozen books up there about the book of the new sun. Really? Yes. So it's, uh, and this is a book that I've read five or six times over the course of my life. And do you remember when you first read it? I tried to read it. The it was it, it, it was originally written as one long book, about a thousand pages long, and it's nominally science fiction. Although a lot of people have described him as like the modern Melville, hmm. and, and just the fact that he writes sometimes uh, in science fiction, I think he doesn't get the the due that he deserves but the book was originally about a thousand pages long and it was first uh published um the publisher split it up into four 200 250 page books and they were released as paperbacks Hmm. and so that they came out in the 80s and i looked it up it said 1980 between 1980 and 83 is when it was So did you first find it when it first came out? Did, were you- so I saw them when they first came out. I would have been um, probably in junior high or high school. Right. And I was an avid reader at the time and, and voracious science fiction and uh, fantasy. And I was taken by the covers. Do you remember the original covers? What was Yeah, it? the original covers, um, they, they're, they're, uh, they're over there. But, mm-hmm. um they were uh, because the lead character is a torturer, and and they were they were not your standard uh, sort of Frank Frazetta kind of you know space guy with a buxom naked woman inside. You know, <laughs> right. they were they were they were they were sort of almost um, uh, the lead character was posed in this in a way that like. Caravaggio Saints would be posed. Oh, really? But the point is, I first picked up one of the paperbacks when they came out in the 80s, and it was too, the prose was too intimidating. It was too dense for me. Mm, interesting. And then over the years, uh, I'm an avid comic book reader, and so I started reading Neil Gaiman's Sandman, mm-hmm. 
and Gaiman in many interviews had talked about Gene Wolfe. And so I picked up the Book of the New Sun again on my, I've been married a, a number of times. You, you know my wife now, <laughs> who I will be my wife for the rest of my life. Yes. But uh, I, I read the Book of the New Sun on my first honeymoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know it would have been like 27 or something like that. And we were in Fiji and I, I had a good chunk of time cause it's a dense book. Right. We, should, we, we could easily spend, we could do 10 hours of your podcast just about right. this book. Right. Anyway, it was very dense. I enjoyed it. And, and then I read some, um, critical commentary about the book and they were describing some events that had happened in the book. Can I swear? Yeah. Okay. Go for it. And <laughs> I said, late. holy shit, I... I didn't notice this plot uh, development in the book. How right. did I miss that? And, right. and there were, and I don't want to give too many things away, but so I reread it a second time a few years later, and there were all of these things that that were in plain view mm-hmm. in the novel that I just somehow missed. Right. And then I reread it a third time, and it's one of these books. It, Gene Wolfe had said with the book on the New Sun, his his goal was originally to to write a novel that could be read again and again and again and again, and each time the reader would pick up something new. Wow! And it's so layered and sprawling and epic that it's it's like I said, it's inspired. I don't even know over a dozen just. Uh, literary critique books about the book of the new sun, Mm -hmm. many of which I have. Mm -hmm. And it's inspired, um, book length glossaries and appendices. Has it inspired you? Do you think, I mean, other than it being, I mean, is there a direct, can you draw a direct link between it and any of your work in particular, or is it just, it's informed you and how you, it it inspired me in a couple of ways. The, the ambition Mm -hmm. in it, Gene Wolfe tends to write with a lot of unreliable narrators, mm-hmm. which um, is a, a technique that I've started to adopt in my own work. That mm-hmm. I, I like I like stories, I like movies, I like TV shows sometimes where as the creator of the narrative, you're deliberately misleading the audience. Sure. And so in the case of the book of The New Sun, this doesn't give too much away, the lead character has eidetic memory, has photographic memory, and he says very early on that he remembers everything. But then if you, as you start to read the book, you will, at times, and he, this character is narrating the story. He's actually writing it in the form of some memoirs. He'll, he'll run into some other characters who will provide a different perspective on an event that had happened. That contradicts and, the one that That contradicts what yeah, he's saying. Sure. And, and then you start to realize that, yes, he has photographic memory, but he's also lying He's about still a liar, things. yeah, and, it's and great. And I just find that fascinating. Yeah, I cause, agree. Because the author is completely fucking with you. I know, I remember that. I distinctly remember that from and, Book of the And so then it becomes great. this game with the author where you're trying to figure out how much of what he's saying actually happened. Right. In, in, in one case, there's a character that that he may have murdered. Right. Uh, right. That, that he tells you he didn't murder. And, and I, I also, it inspired me because... And I think now with proliferation of cable dramas, um, the lead character is a torturer. So the question is, can you write a novel where the lead character isn't, the protagonist isn't particularly heroic? Right. And if you look at shows like The Sopranos or Breaking Bad, well, obviously you can. Right. They don't have to be sympathetic. They just have to be interesting. Right. What took you to sci-fi fantasy? What, what, as a kid, how did you get there? Pure escapism i mean on on on, i didn't have a i had an okay childhood i didn't have uh but i had a tricky childhood and i had a a tricky relationship with my father who was he's dead now but he was not a particularly good dad or a good husband and um he probably never should have been a dad Mm -hmm. uh so he left our house for good when he was um when i was eight but one of my only positive memories of my father was he was a fan of, of science fiction and fantasy. Huh. So he read aloud Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit to my brother and I. He read... Did he do the voices? <clears throat> was he a good reader? Yeah. He, he read uh, some of Edgar Rice Burroughs, Princess Mars books, uh, Tarzan, mm-hmm. things like that. And then he gave me... Uh, the Foundation Trilogy by Isaac Asimov when I was 13. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much 
the only good things he ever did in our relationship. <laughs> All right. But but he instilled in me a love for literature and and escapism. Right. You know. That's interesting. I, I'm I definitely a writer because of that. Right. Was he a writer? No, he no. wasn't. He was a pathological liar, which is a kind of writer. But there's a writer. There's a writer right there. Was your um was your mum influenced by that too, do you think? Is your brother? My brother less so. Mm-hmm. Although now he's he, my brother had uh, dyslexia right. growing up, and so he read much later. I read at a very early age. I think I started reading at three. Yeah. Um, my mom tended to be an avid reader. Although I, I remember we had all the original hardback um, Oz books mm-hmm. that Baum and some of the other writers had written um, growing up. So she was very into those, but. Definitely, I got my love of reading from my dad. Yeah. And the, my love of genre and escapism from him. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because my dad was such an absent dad, too. And I think being an only child, I retreated into books for my brothers and sisters for, for forever. I mean, to this day, they still are. Yeah. And my mom was a nursery school teacher, so she taught me to read at three. And the I'm so struck, you know, talking to people about their love of books how over and over the books are a place to retreat to. Sure. They're, they're a place to sure. to hide. And they, for me anyway, were also a place that was completely unassailable. If you're reading, no one is going to fuck with you. No one's going to tell you to tidy your room yeah. if you're buried in a book. Yeah, yeah, no yeah. One's gonna even No one's even going to tell you to do your homework if you're reading, you know. And well, that was just it. With my mom, I used to... Um read late at night mm-hmm. and it's it's ironic because i have three sons now and my oldest is actually my stepson even though i've been with him since he was about two and in many ways he's the most like me even though he's not biologically really? my son and he he started reading around the age of three as well and he's an avid avid reader and he's he's 10 now and he frequently will read past his bedtime you know, with like a flashlight mm-hmm. under the covers and, you know, how can you bust him? You can't. I used to do the same thing. Do you still read to him? Does he still want to be read aloud to or does he want to read on his own? He he does occasionally, mostly when, I mean, I give him a lot of books to read now. And mm-hmm. We'll talk about them and I'll give him comic books and things like that. He tends to only want to be read to, sometimes he'll hear me reading to the younger boys. Right. And so then he'll want to be read to. Yeah. But he, he pretty much wants to dive in on his own. I just gave him The Dark is Rising books. I don't know if you know those. No. He's sort of a young adult. Uh, I think Susan Cooper wrote them. And I, Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, they do ring a bell. Yeah. Uh, and there were, I believe there were five. There might have been six. They were sort of like if you were into the Narnia books and you were looking for something else. Yes. Yeah, a lot of people. Uh, the, the Caspian series. Is it that? Yeah, Caspian is the Narnia Is ones. the Narnia ones. But I But Dark is Rising was a sort of... If, you know, yeah, Narnia I, I, was the gateway drug, The Darkest Rising was sort of like the second stop. <laughs> I, and I, just, I just gave him The Darkest Rising books, and he's. I was delighted to see him getting into those. Um, what is... Uh, so the book of the new sign is, was the first of your books. So tell me about the Foundation series, because that's the one that your, your dad gave you when you were 13. Yes, so my Isaac Asimov wrote them originally, I want to say, in the late 40s and 50s, and they're commonly regarded as the greatest science fiction works of all time. Really? Okay, so I need to read these. I need to improve my game on the sci-fi world. And I believe he won like a lifetime Hugo for the greatest science fiction work of all time. He subsequently wrote some sequels and prequels, but Asimov was inspired by uh, a book about the fall of the Roman Empire. Right. And so he wanted to write uh, a story that takes place like 30,000 years in the future. Uh, about an empire. Mm-hmm. So this story is a, takes place over the course of a thousand years, and none of the characters obviously continue. Wow. So it's 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 epic in scope, and it's about the fall of this galactic empire when I think mankind is on twenty five million worlds, and so it's about civilizations. Those are in some ways the character rather than wow. individual people. Wow. And it's it's very heady stuff. Yeah. And How do you empathize with a civilization rather than an individual character? Well, there are individual characters, right. but it's it's more about... It takes place in the far future. When it, my dad first gave it to me at 13, I couldn't get through it. Right. Well, he'd already left by then, so this is... So yeah, you're still in contact and he's... Yeah, he showed up at my bar mitzvah. Okay. With he this. gave me this book. So, okay. fair enough. I remember him talking about it uh-huh. when I was a kid. 
it was too heavy for me. And then I read it in college and reread it a couple of times. And people have tried to adapt it for 40 years mm-hmm. into film or TV shows. It's been under continual option. They've spent tens of millions of dollars writing screenplays. And really? And, and very recently, I was in a situation where um, the rights became available and David Allison, Larry Allison's son, who yeah. uh, is the principal behind Skydance, he's a big fan of it. And he literally ran into the room and said, the, the rights to this just became available. Will you adapt it? If I can get them, will you, will you adapt it as a, like a TV series? And, David, this is so exciting. And, and I love and, and, this. Which is cool. Because and it's one of your one of the favorite. My, my dad had yeah, given me a 13. Right. And he said, but you have to, you have to commit to it. And it's, it's, a, it's a half million dollars just for the option, for one year option. Whoa. You've got to write it. For a it year. For a year. Whoa. And, and I said, well, let me think about it tonight. Because it's, it's hard to adapt because it takes place over a thousand yeah. years. And I said, uh, okay, fuck it. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's do it. So, Clock starts ticking May first. Oh my <laughs> lord! We'll see. You'll have to. I'll you'll, come, you'll come back in a year and find we'll out. See, we'll see if we got it. But that's on the so air. exciting. I love this. I love the serendipity that I'm here talking about your favorite books, and this is one of the many. Would it have made this list had this not happened? Yeah, this yeah, yeah. Because it was, them. it was a, it, you know, there's a sort of sense memory. It's one of the, you know, I remember, it was the last book my father had ever recommended to me. And one of the last times that I saw my father, really? uh, uh, you know, I only saw him maybe four times after that. Uh, really? I and, and so I had it on my shelf for a long time. And I, I think I was 20 by the time I read it for the first time because I couldn't. And, and even, even then, I'm, I'm not sure I fully appreciated it. Um, now, the, now I do. Is the edition you have the one he gave you? Uh, at my work, I still have. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's like a um, mass market. Right. You know, Still, but it's nice to have... Large paperback, yeah. It's nice to have the one. Yeah. Um, what is the... Other than the than the scope, which sounds extraordinary, but what's the appeal? What does what, what resonated with you? About Foundation? Yeah. So Foundation is the lead... Or not lead. The, the, the guy that starts off the whole thing is, is a, a mathematician mm-hmm. named Harry Selden from a backwater world. And what happens is he's presenting a paper on the home world of the empire. Um, and he comes up with this idea called psychohistory. And what he decides, he believes that hypothetically, if he had enough computing power and enough time, he believes that the, the, the big moves of civilization are predictable. So he can't predict what an individual will do. Okay. But he can predict with incredible accuracy over the course of a thousand years, the big moves. Okay. Of civilizations, right? And so, initially, the emperor is interested in this, and the emperor thinks, "Well, geez, uh, if I gave you the money to do this, as the the, you know emperor, I sure would love to be able to know what the future was." Right. And and um, and Harry is is reluctant to to sort of give it up to someone like the emperor. And so initially the emperor is just going to kill him. And, and he says, well, what the emperor says, so what's, give me an example of one of your big predictions. He says, okay, well, the empire that you're the head of is going to fall within the next 50 years. Okay. And, and the entire galaxy is going to be plunged into barbarism for 30,000 years. Uh, was the emperor's name Donald Trump? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and and anyway, long story short, he believes he ends up escaping the emperor, and and he and some other scientists are exiled to the far end of the galaxy on this on this world called Terminus, and they start building what they call the foundation. And the idea is is he can't stop this age of darkness from happening. Mm-hmm. The empire is going to fall. It's right. Gonna be Wars, trillions of people are going to die. But if he and the foundation work hard, he believes he can shorten this age of darkness from 30,000 years to a thousand years. Right. And he's going to build this foundation, which is a group of scientists, because I'm very pro science, right. and, and reason mm-hmm. that are going to be out there on the edges of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. And, and they're going to come in uh, and, and rescue the galaxy, you know, after 
you know, so he's going to save humanity 29,000 years of suffering, but he's obviously not going to live to see this happen. Right. And so what he's done is he's predicted the big events that are going to happen and the challenges. They call them the Southern crises over the next thousand years. And then he's created this thing called a time vault. And like every 50 years, 100 years or so, it opens and a hologram of him comes out and says, okay, I predicted this big crisis. <laughs> and now I'm going to tell you how to help solve it. Right, so right, he, right. I guess he does exist in the course of this thousand uh-huh. years. So we're dealing with his grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren, yeah. et cetera. I'm, see, this is where I'm intrigued by, by science fiction and fantasy because they seem to me... They are a world apart from literary fiction because because they take such enormous risks, I feel like. They create these whole parallel dimensions that have their own institutions and hierarchies and rules, and it's Harry Potter to the max. It's like, well, it's this... The best science fiction, fantasy, children's literature, I mean, works as allegory. Right. And it's a way to talk about um, our world now, but in a kind of sideways. Right. You know, because everything that Asimov was writing about, he was sort of following chapter and verse what happened with the Roman Empire. Right. But my, I guess my point is, why is it that the, the appeal of sci-fi and fantasy is so specific? Because it seems to me that it is. Like, there is... It's hard to find the crossover. Right. But, and yet and yet you're saying, and I'm not sure what the point is I'm angling towards here, but you're saying it's both escapism and allegory. And that's what's interesting to me is because it's escapist and there's a fantastical element, but there's an enormous core. It, 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 the only reason it's as powerful as it is is because of how truthful it is. Well, sure. Because I, I think it's, it's like a spoonful of sugar, right? People who, good science fiction, good uh, fantasy, uh, and I have books on here that aren't science fiction or fantasy. Yeah, no, no, I know that. But we'll get the, to them, of but course. The, um, it's it's you're sort of tricking the audience into reading about their world, right? You know, right? For a variety of reasons, they they want to escape their their world. Right? They don't want to read about for whatever reason because it's too painful or too sure. depressing or you know or whatnot. They want to escape into another reality, right? Um, and yet, the good, in the guise of that, yes. comes in some of the darkest storytelling, the most abusive relationships. Well, the, the, I mean, it's it's so interesting that if you'd cloak it in this parallel world, you can then introduce some of the most murky morality sure. to be found. I in mean, Ron Moore's take on Battlestar Galactica, I don't know, 10 years or so ago, yeah. was all about the invasion of Iraq. Right. I mean, it's it's a totally potent political allegory, right. and and very consciously about sure, you know, and consciously about you know humanity, and you know, are the humans just as bad as the Cylons, or vice versa, and you know, what happens when an occupying force comes in, you're dealing with an insurgency, and all of these things. I mean, the Dark Knight trilogy was also about Iraq. Well, I was going to say to you, wasn't it? And 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 that was something that you know. Did you consciously? Yeah, Chris and I, very, very much so. I mean, right. I mean, you know, we had invaded Iraq, and the whole idea with, um, you know, the Joker's methodology, the way that he, he was kidnapping police officers and said, he, I can't even remember now. It's been so long. Whether he was killing one a day or one a week or something. Okay. <laughs> but he was, he was, he was completely, you know, he was using the same methods that the insurgency were using to terrorize, terrorize the state. Right. And, and we were very consciously talking about the Bush administration mm-hmm. and the use of force right. and whether or not it was justified. Yes, it was a movie about Batman, but it was also about these other things. Right. Is it restrictive? And so if we had made a movie just about the Bush administration yeah. or Iraq, no. no one would have watched it. No, it's a documentary that sits on HBO right. and four people Or if see. you're lucky, it's Zero Dark Thirty, which I enjoyed. I but, agreed. But agreed. was a tiny sliver of, of the audience that saw the Dark Knight. A, a much narrower audience, exactly. Is it restrictive, writing allegory, do you think? I don't know. I mean, I think that some way... So many people don't like being preached to. Yeah. Right? So if, if I were to write a story about 
growing up in the Trump era, mm-hmm. many people might, or, or they might, they might judge it, prejudge it, right? Uh, based on whether or not they voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. But if I do a story about Krypton mm-hmm. and I talk about a slide towards nationalism and fascism on Krypton yeah. and not about, which is one of the things we are hoping to explore in this show, and and don't talk about Pence and don't talk about Trump, don't talk <laughs> about these other things, yeah. maybe we can get capture some of that audience right. and, and get them to think about it. Right. Yeah. I think... Yeah, I think when you, you you answer my question, which is, I think if you take, if you take that as your backbone, and you're still allowed the freedom to create and expand and illustrate within that, then you're then you're not being restricted by it. I mean, I think, I think you're right. Allegory is is the way you you smuggle in your moral code. Yeah, yeah. it's a spoonful of sugar. Yeah. Um, let's talk about your third book, A Good Man is Hard to Find. I love seeing this on your list. Um, that's Flannery O'Connor. It was yes. published in 1953. When I looked it up, um, I ha- I knew that I'd read it. And then I was thought to myself, I should go and look at the stories again. I actually I know that I've read the book. Yeah. And I was looking through the titles of the stories and looking at the title story. And, and, it, and it flooded back to me, the you know the crazy misfit and the grandmother and the whole yeah the whole thing of it. When did you when did you read it? When did you come to the book? I think I read the short story in high school, and I'm from Michigan, and I and I have a love of Southern Gothic, and I uh, I think in part it's funny this relates back to my um, my father's family were from the South, uh, even though my mother's family were sort of you know. Chicago, Michigan Jews. My father's family was from Missouri and sort of Southern Ohio, and they were largely Arkansas farmers. And did you know his family much or not? Not much, uh, because they were kind of freaks. Okay. <laughs> and and uh, I, I remember one of my my uncles had gotten wealthy. He was a farmer, and he gotten wealthy inventing something or other. And they were sort of like the Beverly Hillbillies. They, mm-hmm. They had, you know, um, prize hogs, and I remember one of my aunts had, had a coat made of hamster pelts. Oh no yeah. way! Yeah. Did you see that oh, coat? Yeah. And then my grandmother That's was awesome. corpulently fat, and she collected owls. She had this room in her house called the Owl Room, and it was sort of like, like Norman Bates or something. Yeah. It was filled with stuffed owls and ceramic owls. There were hundreds of owls Ugh. and she was she was so fat that she couldn't walk without a cane and she would she would just sit here and she was asthmatic and she was like job of the hut and we would be ushered into her owl room and and she would sort of hug you you know and sort of in these sort of folds of flesh and in my case she would say uh, oh I would love you so much if only you weren't Jewish she was no virulent, no virulent way and so my dad's side of the family that's a horror movie scene it really is well and on top of it i found out on my dad's dad's deathbed that she was also molesting my father wow he was a child wow but um it's okay she got her very just desserts a flannery o'connor death she she died uh she and my my grandfather uh eventually became cattle farmers and she died in a flash flood no way um, uh, on their farm and uh, a wall this is just this is straight out of Flannery O'Connor yeah her body she never learned how to swim <clears throat> and uh, her body was washed away on like a wall of water 20 feet high I don't, I'm not sure if they ever even found her body and my grandfather survived because he was impaled on a tree no and then the water was seen and he was hanging no. there like a scarecrow but he survived Anyway, I, I... I want to know if the hamster pelt coat yeah, made it. Uh, I grew up also with a love of, of Southern Gothic, Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, mm-hmm. things like that. And, um, you know, Flannery O'Connor's stories are dark and funny and, and weird. Um, I mean, there's this... Um, uh, and, and by far, the most famous one is A Good Man It's Hard to Find uh, about uh, a family that goes on a vacation and in the background you hear about a, a killer, an escape killer called the Misfit and they run into the Misfit and, and 
it's it's a remarkable story because it starts out hysterically funny, mm. and 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 then just gets absolutely horrible. Darker, 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 darker and darker and darker. It's just you can't believe it's going where it's going. Yeah, and it just goes there. And um, you know, she 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 had a lot of darkness in her. Do do the um, I'm I love that you relate to the Southern Gothic because of your family. I mean, now you tell that say that about your grandmother. I. I believe it. I see. I yeah. see the correlation. Yeah. Do you? Um, and I, I had cousins that grew up in trailer parks and born again Christians and things like that. Right. Do you feel it in your work, the Southern Gothic, the the flavor of that, the darkness of that, the the grotesquery of it? Uh, the grotesquery, yes, but I'm not sure that I I have a a flair for Southern Gothic. I don't know that I necessarily see any of that in my work, although. I'm a huge fan of it. Right. It's curious. She always said, I think, I'm going to misquote her horribly, but I, I'm pretty sure Flannery O'Connor said, yeah, what you think of as Southern Gothic passes for realism. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> I, I just love. you about my, my father's yeah. family. And, you know, I I had a uh, an uncle who, you know, uh, had his legs amputated because he got adult onset diabetes. He was just living, you know, in a trailer no, park. And then no. cousins that went over to, you know, Iraq and, you know, obviously the aunt and uncle that had prize hogs and hamster belt coats and all sorts of things. So, yeah. I, um, have you read others of hers? Have you read any of her novels? Yeah. Uh, Wise Blood. Yeah. And, um, Wise Blood's the one I know. I haven't, I didn't, I didn't actually know what the other ones were. But. I'm trying to remember the name of the story also in that collection about, um, Man that comes and seduces a woman. She's got a prosthetic leg, and uh, yes, I know exactly. Is it, and then he steals it. He fucks her, and, and then, then he steals, steals the leg. Is it not called the life you save? Maybe your, maybe own? your own. I feel Is it like that one. Uh, no, there's a different one that. Um, I think that's a different story. Anyway, uh, I'll need to look it up. Yeah. But yes, it's it's horrifying and but and, funny also and brilliant and absurd. Yeah. What did you read at college? Uh, you mean. Um, through school or yeah. just in general? Yeah, what were you, well, what were you reading in, in, throughout? In college, I was in film school. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was reading screenplays. Right. Like, uh, but I minored in poetry. Did you? Yeah, lar- entirely because there was a, a, a woman uh, writer, a poet, uh, she's since gone on to run an Albertine named Carol Muskie, who I had an enormous crush on. Oh, and really? Just decided to minor poetry. <laughs> Purely so I could be in class. <laughs> what did you read? What was the poetry that you liked or related to or didn't? Well, at the time, she was, and I still have some on my shelf, she was into like Dobbins and um, Charles Simic and Louise Glick. Like, yes, never heard, Gluck. Never, yeah. never heard it pronounced all out. No, no one. I wouldn't uh, heard. Uh, and she was a poet herself. And then um, later on, I. Post college, got into um, Rilke and Goethe and and um, uh, people like that. Yeah, I. Uh, it's funny. People talking about poetry invariably have uh, yours is the first. Per- you are the first person who's told me you got into poetry because of the crush on the woman. <laughs> Most of the people I've spoken to have said they got into poetry because it was shorter. And if you had to do it at college, then at least you won't start with novels that you no, no, no. I just, I just <laughs> paragraph. I, I had completely. I just was in love with, you know, the poetry teacher. I love it. That's of course, never went anywhere. But. Not to worry, it got you there. Um, let's talk about your next book, which is uh, Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Diamond. I love the um, subtitle of this, which is A Short History of Everybody for the Last 13,000 Years, published in 1997. I started this book and I... Uh, couldn't get through it? I couldn't get through it. I tell you why. I just... I, I think I got glibly I felt like I've done the first third of this and if you tell me one more time that the Fertile Crescent is the reason that civilization is what it is I'm going to throw this across the room so, so I felt like I'd understood it and that I didn't need any more and now I feel when I see it on your list I, I feel like no I should go back and try this again so he I mean he opened my eyes to a lot of I also read a lot of non-fiction books mm-hmm. um, uh, and um Gun germs and steel is it's it's he he I believe he won a Pulitzer. Uh, I think it did. Yeah. Some some big award, but but he he laid out very succinctly why certain civilizations 
you know, why Europeans were more successful than people in Africa mm-hmm. or people in Australia. Or, and so he, he also attacked like the bell curve, you know, which is, I believe, you know, kind of eugenics and bullshit, sure. you know, using science as racism. And, and he, he had sort of linked some ideas together in a way that just in a, in a very cogent, succinct way that no one had ever really thought about before. And I'm going to do a horrific job trying to nutshell. No, but, okay. but fundamentally, I'll give you one example. Yeah. So I think there were something like 16 or 17 animals that had been successfully domesticated in terms of, you know, working for us right. uh, throughout civilization, whether it be horses or llamas or cows right. or elephants, things like that. Sure. And, and it's one of the reasons why, um, civilizations are more successful than other civilizations because we, mankind started out as hunter gatherers and, uh, but if you can domesticate an animal and train an animal to pull a plow, then you can create a surplus of food. Right. And if you have a surplus of food, you don't have to be a hunter gatherer. You can stay in one place. And then if you have a surplus of food, some of the people in your uh, community can specialize and start to do things other than procuring food. Right. Like, uh, you know, um, smelting steel. Right. Uh, And then all of the things... That emerge from that. and, 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 And if you can start planting food and growing crops... And raising livestock. Then you're also not as dependent on them if a plague hits or... You're not as dependent, but also what happens is is you can have a denser population. So instead of just being a small group of, say, 50 people, a tribe that are moving across the plains, maybe you can have 500 people together or 1,000 people living together with pigs and sheep and getting diseases. Right. Which sounds gross, but what happens (laughs) is all those diseases gradually make that community more resistant to other diseases and right. so their immune systems are stronger right and so one of the things that Jared Diamond did is he looked at um, where these these animals that had been successfully domesticated lived okay uh-huh. so something like 12 of them were in Europe right. in Asia so the people in Europe and Asia just had a leg up instantly only one of them was in South America the llama the llama right right None of them are in Australia. Right. Which is why the Aborigines never evolved past hunter-gatherers. They literally... So, you know, when white people came to Australia, of course they mowed them down. Right. Sure. So it has nothing to do with the fact that, like, one race was inferior to another race. They just got the short end of the stick in terms of... But see, this is fascinating because because that, by the way, you so did not butcher that. I think that's as graceful well, a crazy as yeah. I've heard. But but this is my question: is 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 that one idea of many in the book? Sure. Is that he posits that as one theory for why, say, Australia wasn't a thriving well, but it, but it, inter-style civilization. But it's obvious when you look at it. Sure. They don't have any... They're, they're, Australia never had any successfully domesticated animals. Right. So the Aborigines, Aborigines Couldn't could get never past evolve past hunter-gatherers. Right. But no, I'm asking... I'm not, I'm not suggesting it's not true. I'm asking, but what are the other theory... What is the other stuff that he's positing? I mean, I'll reread the book, so you don't have to praise him. I don't know. It's an 800-page book. <laughs> well, he's, 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 he's saying that... Look, that's one of the things. One of the other, I'll give you another example. You know, one of the other sort of mitigating factors has to do with the orientation of the uh, the landmass that they're in. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so Europe is orientated uh, horizontally, right? So rather than north south. So because it's largely horizontal, um, the various the climates and the, yeah, right. the climate is more consistent. Sure. There's not as much extremes, right? Yeah, the growing seasons are longer, and and the grains can sort of propagate across the landmass. So if you take something like South America or Africa, which are orientated vertically, on a vertically yeah. vertical axis, there's much more extreme, and what's growing at the bottom can't necessarily grow at the top, and right. that also makes it harder. Yeah. Okay. 
totally persuaded to reread this book because okay. I'd got like I said I, if, I, if I saw the words Fertile Crescent one more time I was like I got it but I got it you didn't want to call it the Fertile Crescent yeah, no, so anyway no, no. fundamentally it's like guns, germs and seals so, so but what did you love about this what was what I mean what's emerging I, is a love I of science and a love holy of holy shit this guy just nutshell right why certain continents were more successful than other continents why uh by dint of luck, uh-huh. certain races were more successful than right. other races. Right. And and it just, it you know, just a light yeah. opened up when I was reading. And I just, I was just blown away by, by the way that he sort of methodically presented his and case. And broke it down, yeah. Um, no, as you talk about it, I'm, I'm reminded of, you know, hearing about and understanding a theory of evolution for the first time when I first someone sat down in biology lots of races say well like well then then if if African Americans you know aren't inferior then why didn't they do X, Y, or Z right Right. Jared Diamond just said well here's why you fucking idiot right (laughs) you know here's let's fix that yeah where did the are you a scientist at any level do you I mean I have a love of science and I think if I didn't wasn't doing what what I'm doing, uh, I probably would be interested in science. I'm involved in the Science Exchange, which is a group through the National Academy of Sciences that tries to promote science through film and television. Oh, interesting. I didn't know about that. uh, Filmmakers with prominent scientists around the world. So it's something I definitely passionately believe in. Right. Did you study it? Well, you went to film school, so no. You know, I... At school, is it a thing? I studied it, and I think what happened was I had a math block when Uh I got to algebra. I got all A's, and then in junior high, my first algebra class, something happened, and I I flunked algebra, Uh and then I just had this terrible block, and so I was afraid to go into physics. I was afraid to go into these things, and then later on, as an adult, just for fun, uh, in my sort of mid-20s and late 20s, I took a bunch of quantum mechanics classes at UCLA. Just for fun? Yeah. Your idea of and, fun, uh, man. That's know. crazy. Particle physics. Uh, um, let's talk about your last book, which is another book that I had also read and that I didn't remember a word of, but this speaks to my memory and not the quality of the novel. The Keep by Jennifer Egan, which was published in 2006. Um, what did you love about this? So I don't even know how I came to read The Keep. But I remember I was on a writing trip. I, I go, about three times a year I go away. Usually I lock myself up in a hotel room and um, and I'll write 12 hours a day and then eat dinner and then read for a couple hours at night. And I had to keep with me uh, Jennifer Egan. And I started reading it. And um, I don't want to give too much away because there's there's a real surprise ending. There's, there's two narratives in the story. One is about the kind of fuck-up, who um, is invited, uh, his cousin is restoring uh, an old castle mm-hmm. in Europe, and his cousin invites him to come hang out with him and uh, help him restore the castle. And slowly you unravel this narrative between the two of them when they were kids, something that happened. And it's got the sort of trappings of um, also a gothic sort of ghost story. Sure. The, the character starts to believe that there's a ghost uh, in this old ruins of the castle. Keep, yeah. there's, an, there's another narrative uh, about a woman who's teaching a writing course to these prisoners. I don't know if you Oh, yes. They're, now they're, they're intertwined. Yes, I did not remember this. I just remembered the cousins. I did not and, remember this. And uh, she's got a kind of fucked up life and she's in a really unhappy marriage and she's trying to reach these hardcore prisoners uh, through creative writing and um, I don't I don't want to give away the right. ending, but um, so there's these two sort of twinned narratives and again um, I'm always intrigued by the unreliable narrative sure. narrator and 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 Egan really fucks with the reader in the story and the ending is I bawled <laughs> did you I bawled did you and uh I mean, I just bawled, and it's it's incredibly romantic, and in it doesn't go where you think it's going to go. And uh-huh. There's a couple of revelations, 
it's I just think it's an incredible book. Did you um, are you a crier in books? Did the, the, clearly, I mean, this one had its impact. Some I, sometimes I'm a crier. I right. tend to cry more in movies, uh-huh. um, but this one I just ball. And it's I think one of your later questions is you might have mentioned. Do you have any books like that are like a go to like? This will get me laid. Yeah, but it's a question. <laughs> I, gave, I, gave this, I gave this book to my now wife, uh-huh. and it did get me laid. Good, I'm so it. glad. We have a shared love of this book. It's so great. It is. Well, those are my. Those are the questions that I was going to come to now. One of them is is exactly which is the book that if you're reading in a bar or you give to your wife, you know, gets you laid. I'm glad the keep is one of them. Um, well, it answers also my next question, which is what was the was that the last book that made you cry? No, or is that- no, no. I've I've read that. God, I first read that book. Um, ironically, I read it. Uh, it was around the time I met you, and around the time uh, my my previous marriage was going down the drain. Uh, I because I think either. During that time, I might have already, you know, separated from my previous wife, or I was just about to. I might uh-huh. have. I think I might have even separated right after I read the book. But I remember the book also inspired me because it, no, I did get separated afterwards because because this woman who's in one of the narratives is in this really unhappy marriage, and I remember also responding to that oh, and right. being in a marriage where I realized I was unhappy. Yeah. And, and coming to that realization and mourning um, the marriage and, and feeling like a fuck up because, you know, nobody cheated on anyone. Right, like that, right. But I, just, I just felt like a failure, but yeah. also I knew that I had to get out. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it, when you realize that prose, that, that you know, be it a magazine article or a, or a novel, that feeling of recognition when you go, I, they know... They know me. They, someone else has been sure. there. I am not alone, sure. which is basically, I think, the whole reason to read is, is essentially to answer the existential it, angst of not feeling alone. In it's world. funny. I, I was, when I was uh, in high school, I won um, a national writing award. Wow. Uh, my high school teacher, uh, I'd written a, it was like a creative writing short story, and she had submitted it to... Um, can't even remember the thing, but anyway, I won a national writing, uh-huh. and then they they published uh, a, an excerpt of my story um, in some newspapers, and 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 then there was something might have even been in the New York Times or something like that, and then there was another person who'd also uh, in my school who'd run one uh, writing award, not this one, but a certain one, the Ann Arbor News. I grew up in Ann Arbor. Uh, interviewed us about writing, right, and. Um, one of my friends uh, said that he just had this like passion to write and that he would write even if no one ever read it. Huh. And I just said, that's just complete bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> other, than writing, other than writing in a journal, I, I, I just don't believe that. I think most writers write because they want to communicate. They do, they want to have that relationship with the audience. Right. They do want it to be read. Yeah. And I just thought it was just pretension, just a fucking pretentious answer. Right, right, right. That's funny. Because if no one ever saw anything that I wrote, I would stop writing. Personally, I would. You I would, would do something else. Right. I, I write and, uh, well, I don't know. I don't know. But I, I don't necessarily write to be read at this point. But, uh, okay, but it varies. Fair enough. That was me. Yeah. But you, but you might like to be if I weren't being seen in the rest of my life probably yeah but, but since since I act for a living and I'm, I'm literally I pay to be I'm paid to be vis- visible yeah maybe it, it scratches that itch for me so if what, so if you've read things since The Keep that have made you cry what would what would one of them be um I cried uh there's a little slim it's not exactly a memoir sort of, I'm not exactly sure what you would call it. Um, I believe it's called For the Time Being, uh-huh. Annie Dillard. Oh, Annie Dillard, yeah. yeah. Uh, that I was really moved by. Um, just sort of musings about different Yeah, she's wonderful. I just, uh, I just ordered The Abundance. Yeah, I've heard about that. I haven't read I it. I haven't read it, yeah. I'm and then, and then I, was, I was really caught off guard by uh, a book that's come out fairly recently called The Hike. No, I don't know it. And um, which is uh, something that I'm um, hoping as an executive producer to help bring to screen. Um, and um, 
it's a kind of uh, postmodern take on Alice's Wonder, Alice uh-huh. in Wonderland, uh-huh. and um, about a dad with a couple of kids uh, and and a pretty good marriage with his wife, and and then he he goes on a hike and gets lost, and a bunch of incredibly surreal, strange things happen, and um, that kind of, that book kind of sucker punched me because uh-huh. it's a it's a deeper book than appears right. on the surface, and there's a revelation at the end of it. Um, because it's fundamentally a, a book about this guy sort of struggling. He's got a good marriage, but it's, you know, all this sort of, well, you're a parent and I'm a parent and, you know, there are, especially Sunday, we're, we're speaking on, you can, I, call, <laughs> I call it the gates of fire yeah. when it's like Sunday afternoon and you just want to fucking you go. You just want speak. it to be and Monday. You, and then you also feel like, fuck, is this what my life I is? Agree, and I I'm agree. just... I'm just becoming this crabby motherfucker. No, I know. But listen, I meet all my mums at the gate on Monday morning and we all look at each other and like, TGIM, man. TGIM. Yeah, yeah, I don't care we're, about weekends. We're just, today is the last day of two weeks of spring, spring break. Spring fucking break. And my wife and I are just like, get you fuckers. <laughs> anyway, but this is about that. Right. And then this guy, you know... He loves his wife, but they don't have sex as much as they used to. And they, you know, they, they fight and they squabble. Sure. And this thing happens and then he just appreciates him so bad. And he right. just wants all he can do to get back to them. And he has this crazy experience. And, and again, I don't want to give it away, but there's a kind of revelation at the end of the book. And it's, it's a deeper book than first appears. Great. I'm going to check it out. Um, what's the book you're most ashamed of loving if there is one? Yes, a book called Illusions by, I think it's named Robert Bach. He, he's the guy who wrote Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Yes. And I used to go to summer camp when I was a kid, and uh, I went for six or seven years. And a counselor, I remember there was a paperback, and there was a, there was a bird feather against uh-huh. the backdrop of a field of stars. And there was a... I remember it. There was, a, again, inspired by there was a female counselor who... Um, I got to know because the boys were on one side of the lake and the girls were on the other side of the right. lake. And you could, you could canoe across the lake and sort of say hi to them and you'd go to like a square dance. Oh, uh, yeah. And then uh, we would go to summer camp for six weeks and then the, the sort of highlight of the six weeks is you would go on a co-ed canoeing camping trip. Oh, man. That was like a big... That sounds so good. Yeah, I had like my... <laughs> I had my first kiss. First I, everything. I had my man. first hand job. Oh, man. So good. Trips. On the canoe? Surely no, no. no. That we sounds were, I definitely remember this. We were, we, were, we were in a school bus, and um, we were supposed to go to a campground, and there was this terrible rainstorm. And we had to pull over to the side of the road in a, in a parking lot. Uh, and I, this is like 13. Right. Uh, outside of the church. Uh-huh. And they just said, we're just going to sleep. It was guys and girls, like 13, 14 year old. We're just going to sleep on the bus. Oh my God. And, and I was in a sleep. I'm feeling yeah. the hormones so just, right now. Just, I'm just, rain was of like course. thundering down on us and it was lightning. And, and I, I, I was and with a throbbing a, a, bus of yeah, 13 yeah, yeah. year olds. And, and, and it was, it was the middle of the night. And I was with a girl that I kind of had a crush on and we were, we were leaning against each other in the bus seat. Yep. And so we're on a bus filled <laughs> with counselors. And, 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 and I remember we were in the in the front seat. Oh. And there was actually a counselor in the driver's seat, sleep, oh like by the participant right in front of God. us. And he just reached into my elastic banded gym shorts and gave me a hand job on this bus <laughs> during the thunderstorm. And, and it was definitely one of the best orgasms That's I've ever had. Do not for a second think that that story is being edited out of my podcast. <laughs> I'm just warning you right now. They're we're going to headline. Okay. So I remember. So so the, one of the female counselors that I also had a crush on, it was a very confusing mm-hmm. time, was reading this book, Illusions. So right. I, I asked her about it. And she gave me the book. And it's it's kind of a, a uh, sort of book about, it's kind of a modern Christ story, I guess. Mm-hmm. And... Um, but there, and I and I, and I wrote it down so I could remember it. There was a quote in it that I, has always stuck with me. That I've I've said uh, I paraphrased to my kids, um, and it's a because one of the lead characters ends up leaving one of the other characters, and the quote is, "Don't be dismayed at goodbyes. A farewell is necessary before you can meet again, 
and meeting again after moments or lifetimes is certain for those who are friends. Hmm, that's and lovely. I, I always remember that. And I remember learning early on, like a firm goodbye, like you shake hands and then you part and you don't look back. Right. And that's something that uh, I also learned from a counselor at summer camp. And, I, and I, I'm a big proponent of not long goodbyes. Right. Like extended goodbyes. Yeah. Even with the kids. Short right? and sweet. So just goodbye and... And you're out. And, and, and we'll meet again. Yeah. No, no. Rip off the bandaid. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I also remember randomly from summer camp that same trip, the difference between a journey and an adventure. Mm-hmm. And and this is what one of the counselors said that night when we got caught in that rainstorm because everybody was crying and upset and and um, uh, an adventure. He said the definition of an adventure is to embark on a journey where the outcome is uncertain. That's great. Was that the <laughs> counselors or yeah, is that a The counselor said that That's and that great. happened the same night I got my first answer. Yeah, yeah, the outcome was pretty certain there. Uh, I love it. That's great. The next question I have for you is, what is the book or author you feel most guilty about not having read? Never read any Philip Roth. Uh-huh. Do you want to? I guess so. I feel I like I should. He's worth it. Yeah, I'm going to okay. say that. He definitely, definitely is. Um particularly with your love of allegory. I would say The Plot Against America. Yeah, I've, I've read about it. Yeah. I've never read any Updike. Right, nor have I. Uh, and then my wife adores Murakami. Oh, okay. And, yeah. I'm, and much to her dismay, I've not read any Murakami, although yeah. she's never given me a Murakami. Okay. Book, I suspect so. you had to, you have but to ask Marina for that. <laughs> no, but I'm like saying, so give me one and I'll read it. Um, do you have a preference, Kindle, print, audiobook? Um, I, I don't generally like reading on Kindle. Uh-huh. I, but I travel a lot and it's, a, it's, I, I prefer reading, you know, a print book, yeah. partic- particularly a hardback book. I just, I just like the experience, but you know, I'm going to China on Tuesday and I'm not going to lug a bunch of books to China up yeah. on my Kindle. Right. Um, do you do audio? Interestingly enough, not until recently, uh, a friend of mine, uh, a director who he did uh, Tim Miller he did the movie Deadpool um, and he's a big fan of a fantasy series that he's trying to bring to screen called um, The First Law uh-huh. and he particularly likes and I can't forgive me I can't remember the name of the person who's narrating the books That's but he particularly likes the actor who narrates the books uh-huh. and so he sent them to me and recently I was working I live in uh, Hancock Park, but I was working out in Santa Monica for a while, and it was a long hike. Sure. Uh, at the end of the day, back hour and a half, and so I started listening to these audiobooks, uh-huh. um, and they're pretty fun. We also did a trip with our boys up to we went up the five up to um, Calistoga, and we got a bunch of um, like Bullfinch's mythology. Uh, oh, and yeah. I, I think they were, it was people like Morgan Freeman. And, Great. Doesn't it make a difference? Yeah. It really just does. Reading the classics I agree. And playing them for our kids. Um, do you have a book you wish you'd written? Do you have a book in you? Do you have a fantasy you know, I, about I, that? I co wrote a novel once and um, didn't like it. Right. Didn't like the process. I don't know why. I don't. Um, it's I've long. Never had, I've never had a desire <laughs> it's to write. It's laborious. Yeah, I don't know. I've never had a desire to write. Well, you're not. You're one of the more prolific people I know, so I'm not worried about you not having written a book. Is there a book I wish I'd written? It's funny. There are movies I wish I'd written. Really? But, but I don't have book envy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have a lot of admir. Which is not to say that. I mean, there are authors that I admire tremendously. Sure. But I don't want to be them. Right. Yeah. I think that probably speaks more to me, that question, than it does to anybody else. I think I Maybe. feel like there's, there's a novel in me that I haven't delivered yet. And so I, I sort of Would attribute that to other people. No, I, I tool around with short stories a lot, okay. and, but I haven't, I haven't gone to the novel yet. Um, is there a book you expected to like but didn't? God. I'm sure there is. Um, it's, it's funny because we're sitting in my home office where I write and I have a lot of bookshelves and all the books that you see and there are a fair amount of them uh, this represents only about 20% of the books that I have right 
because I just I I periodically do these calls. So so I used to have yeah, this thing too. where I, if I started a book, I had to finish it. Right. I was going to ask where are you. What and are you doing I used with to that? have that with movies too. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, I said, "Fuck it, I hate this movie." Yeah, me too. It. And then I, maybe about ten years ago, if I was reading a book and I didn't enjoy it, I would just stop it. And then I started going through my books, and I thought, you know, I didn't enjoy this book. I'm not going to read it again. Right. And, I, and I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to donate it to the library. Yeah, I need to do that. I'm. I'm. Davy calls me throwy outy because I throw out. I, I. I have very little attachment to material things. I'm really um, unsentimental about stuff. And the one thing I have huge, huge, insurmountable sentimentalism it's about books. is books. Yeah, I but it's cannot it's, do it. But you, unless they're pulp, in I which just, case I just don't. Care. I just went through a call about a month ago, and I think it. You know, I um, <clears throat> I sold my first home. Uh, I put it on the market the day before nine eleven. Wow! And then nine eleven happened, and uh, I, I was single at the time. And then I thought, well, I'll just take it off the market. I, right. Nobody's going to buy it now. Right. Sure. And then the day after nine eleven, someone bought my home for asking price. Wow! And I didn't have a place to live. Right. <laughs> and I had two dogs. And so at the time I moved into a venerable hotel here called the Chateau Marmont, which I lived in for a year, but I put everything in storage. Did you? I didn't know that. Everything, but you know, my computer and right. You know, a handful of clothes. And, and I lived there for about two years and eventually I built a house. And, um, after two years, uh, I got, everything out of storage and the movie truck came up and so for two years I'd lived without all my sure, shit sure yeah and uh did you throw all of it did you take one look at it so and be like said, I pulled, need the, any they of they pulled it up and I'd gotten some new furniture because the house that I built was different from sure different style and I they brought it up they rolled over in the back of the truck and I I went inside I looked at everything and then I there were six or seven shoe boxes of old letters that I'd written. Uh-huh. And I took those out and I just said, take it. So the entire, I didn't take anything else off no. of the entire truck. Where did they take it? I just take it to Goodwill. I said, take what you want. Take the rest of Goodwill. No. I don't care. Oh my God. Those yeah, guys everything. had the greatest day of I their mean, lives. It was stereos. It was. David, CDs. that's an amazing it was, story. It was an entire moving truck of shit. How did it feel? Did you feel anything? Amazing. It must have done. I still have the desire to do that, you know. From time to time. Yeah. That's incredible. Because we just accumulate so much shit. I know. We had a similar experience with a remodel and we lived on, you know, with very, very little. And then came back after a year and I was just like, guess what? I don't need a crate full of Tupperware. Yeah. I just don't. And you. But I did not send the moving truck back. I did. (laughs) But but books are, are, um, and especially now that, uh, you can get shit on And they also one of the great sort of loves of my life is is uh, advanced book exchange. Uh-huh. What's that? Which it's it sort of connects all these independent bookstores around the world. Right. And you can find any out of print book, any edition right. ever. And you mm-hmm. can do the same sort of through Amazon. Right. I was gonna Every say doesn't so Amazon do it with A books and all of that? Yeah. 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 And in fact I think Amazon bought the advanced book right right yes that's you this is what we're talking about the same thing i call it abe abe exactly yeah um my last question you get to take one book to your desert island what is it book of the new sun it is because the book of the new sun every single time i read it i it's a new story it's a new story (laughs) and it's a story about story and there's there's there are individual short stories within it and it also is a book that is an Ouroboros. It's a sort of snake eating its own tail, and it's 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 a, a book that sort of ends as it began. And um, you make me want to reread it. I'm going to go dig it out. Oh, it's amazing. Well, I think I told you this once, but the question is the lead character's name, Severian. Yeah. And uh, so one of the questions to think about when you read the book is how many times does he meet himself in the book? Oh God! So, so now I'm forced to literally press stop at the end of this podcast and go and reread the book of the New Sun. Just to answer that he question, actually, 
meets himself a shit ton of times. There's all these sort of paradoxes going on underneath, okay. sort of, you know, between the lines. I defy anyone who has listened to this podcast to not go and read the book of the new sun. But it's heady. I'm going to. No, it's wonderful. David, thank you so, so much. Thank this you. was such a pleasure and so fun to hear your choices. Thank you. That was David Goyer, and you've been listening to Bookish. If you like the show, subscribe, tell a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, share one of the interviews on social media, send someone an email to tell them you liked it, bore them at dinner with how great the show is. Just get them to subscribe. All of the music is created and performed by my multi-talented husband, Davy Holmes, and the show is produced by the long-suffering Joe Batanz. Join me next week for my interview with actress Julie Bowen. Mm-hmm.